Well, greetings, Crossview Church. It's good to see you. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. So there was this guy who had a dream to go on an African photo safari, to go to Africa and take pictures of all the African wildlife there and just dreamed about it and dreamed about it. And finally, some of his friends and family and coworkers started to go fund me. They put their money together and they're able to give him this gift that he always hoped for. And he went to Africa and he was so excited and he's getting pumped and he gets into the Jeep. They're getting ready to go out on the safari and the Jeep pulls away and he's just overwhelmed by the scenery of the African environment. He sees all the different trees and the the rolling hills and the green mixed with the desert and the, he just was overcome and he's got his camera and he's taking all these pictures and then an hour into it, they still haven't seen any wildlife and he's starting to have that anxiety come up in his heart that I come all this way and I'm not going to see one animal on the safari and people in the Jeep who've paid big money are all asking the same thing and you could tell the driver of the Jeep's getting really nervous because there's supposed to be animals and there's not and you know he's trying to, sweat's forming on his brow and they're driving and all of a sudden the driver says, ah, there's some wildlife, look out to the right, you'll see a duck and they look and there's this little duck and and the guy's trying to save face. He's like, that's a very rare African duck. We don't see that very often. And the guy looks and it looks like a duck like we have at home. And, it's like, and so then they keep going and, and more time passes. It's getting more nervous. And all of a sudden the radio starts going crazy. And the guy turns around and says, there's a lion. And so he flips the Jeep around. They turn, they head back the way they came. And sure enough, all of a sudden on the right, they looked, and here's this huge male lion laying underneath this tree with this huge mane sitting there. And then the guy realized that the lion was right across the street from the duck. And when they were looking at the duck, the lion was right behind them. And you can imagine the feelings that came from that. That is how many Christians read the book of Revelation. They read the book of Revelation fixed on the duck, and they miss the big lion of God right behind them. They get fixed on the duck, things like the tribulation and the rapture and 666 and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and all these things. They get so focused on the duck they miss the lion and the lamb and the Lord of all. My hope is as we journey through the book of Revelation and as we wrap it up next week that in this series you were pulled away from the duck and you saw some of the lion. And my hope today as we can continue this is that you don't get caught up in the duck and the distractions of the duck, but you get caught up in the lion. Today is going to be kind of a different sermon. I'm going to tell you that right off the bat. Usually our bread and butter here is to take a passage and pull it out and look at it and get into it. And, and here we're doing something a little different this morning. It's going to be more of a teaching 
Uh, it's going to feel maybe a little more like a Bible study or Bible school. And when we get to the end of it, you know what? Some of you are going to love it. You're going to say, oh, that was so great. I'm so glad he did that. And some of you are going to absolutely hate it. And you're going to say, why in the world did he waste our time doing that? And my response to that is, welcome to family, right? That's just how it rolls. So we're going to take a look, and contrary to what you think I might be doing, this morning we're going to dive into the ducks a little bit. I just said, don't get caught up in the ducks, look at the lion, but I'm going to kind of bring out the ducks and look at the distractions. And the reason is because you and I both know, if I say to you, just don't look at the ducks and look at the lion, Forget about the ducks, forget about rapture, forget about tribulation, forget about antichrist, forget about all that stuff. Just look at the lion, look at Jesus. You're gonna, are you going to do that? No, you're not. Because we all want to know, right? So we're going to dive into some of the ducks, the distractions, and my hope is that you put them to rest then. Or at least they find their spot on the theological ranking where you realize the lion and grabbing a hold of him and realizing that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords is bigger than all the duck's distractions of the book of Revelation. My prayer is not to add power to the distractions, but to bring some understanding to the distractions so that you can put them in their proper place. I'm going to look at what I call the extras of the book of Revelation this morning. Many ask about the rapture and the tribulation and what's going to happen and Jesus reigning on earth for a thousand years and what does all that mean. And I want you to notice if you journeyed with us through this series that we started back in January all the way to now, if you notice there hasn't been a whole lot in the book of Revelation about a rapture, about the tribulation, about the end. There's been some, but nothing has spelled that out exhaustively and usually should take note of that. You should take note of that. I've made it my aim to try the best of my ability with the help of the Holy Spirit to preach this book with what the Bible says there, keeping it at the right view. And if you notice, it doesn't dive into a lot of ducks. And there's a reason for that. Because the ducks come from different schools of theological thought, where they put together different passages. And usually when people hear the book of the Revelation, the first thing that comes to mind are all the ducks. And they miss the main point. The main point of the book of Revelation is this. Jesus is king. All evil will be destroyed. And Jesus will rule and reign with his followers in a new heaven and new earth forever and ever. That's the main point. That's the lion. Don't miss the lion. Jesus is king. All evil will be destroyed. And Jesus will rule and reign with his followers forever and ever in a new heaven and new earth. That's the main point of the book of Revelation. That's what should stir our hearts when we want to dive into this book. Let us not forget the main point. The minute you forget that point, the minute you start to wander from that point, you lose the gift of hope that the book of Revelation wants to give you this morning. And always. You will get pulled 
from all the distractions of life and forget that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Remember one of the things we kept saying throughout this series is the Bible wasn't written to us, it was written for us. So the book of Revelation was written to an original audience in 90 AD and the apostle John wrote it and that original audience had a context very different than ours. Some of the things that they were experiencing in their context was martyrdoms were happening frequently. People were being put to death for their faith. That was a regular occurrence. They're being told and fed lies that the Roman Empire is the only kingdom and it will last forever and ever. They're being fed lies that the emperors of Rome are actually gods that should be worshipped. They were fed lies that said this empire is never ever going to end. It's going to be like this forever. And when they live through that year after year after year, you can understand why they start to wonder and doubt about the Old Testament and about Jesus coming. And did all that really happen? Because all I'm pounded with day after day, year after year, are these lies about this emperor in this empire. And to the point, I'm seeing my brothers and sisters be killed. And the book of Revelation comes into that context to say, Jesus Christ is king. All evil will be destroyed. Jesus will rule and reign with his followers forever and ever and ever. It comes to destroy all the lies of that time. And you know what? It destroys all the lies of our time as well. The things that make us believe that things of this world will satisfy our soul, and then they don't. And the book of Revelation is there to point to the thing that will satisfy your soul for eternity. All the things that we put our hope in and make gods out of our world today that fail us, and the book of Revelation is there to say, go to the true God, Jesus Christ. Revelation is written to counter these lies. So now, when it comes to how Jesus is going to come back, all the finer points and details, there's different views that can be supported in the Bible. There's different views on the finer points. What's not up for grabs is that he is coming back. That is rock solid. And before we dive in, I just want to say one of the things I love about our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church, is that we say this quote often. We say, in the essentials of the faith, there has to be unity. and the non-essentials of the faith, there's diversity and all things Jesus Christ. So what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is there's certain points of doctrine in the Bible that are crystal clear. You can't miss it. And in those things, we call those the essentials of the faith. There are things like God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's things like Jesus is the one and true Son of God. There is no other. Things like the only way you get to heaven is by placing your trust in the finished work and person of Jesus Christ. These are the essentials of the Christian faith that the church has held for eons. And we will not budge off of these. We will not move one of the essentials is that Jesus Christ is coming again. We will not budge off of that. That is an essential. However, not everything in Scripture and in Christianity 
in terms of doctrine is spelled out exhaustively. There's a theological ranking of things that are super clear and then things that are sort of clear and things that are very much opinion. And we see this throughout. And in the things that are not super clear in our denomination, we say you can hold to any of these views. You have to land somewhere, but you can hold to any of these views. And there can be diversity in those things. And I love that about our denomination. I love that I can go to a conference in our denomination with other pastors, and there's some theological points that people disagree with me on. And we learn and we grow. But in all things, we hold the unity of Jesus Christ that we are brothers and sisters, and in the, the essentials bind us together and hold us together. Now, you might be saying, I thought the whole Bible is true, and it is. Everything in this book is true. Well, why then are there things that are super clear, and why are there things that God didn't make totally clear? Why didn't God just make it all the way clear? You have to understand what the Bible is. The Bible, it says in 2 Timothy, is God breathed out. It's a perfect revelation of who God is. Now, the Bible tells us we can know God enough to be saved and to grow in him. We have all we need, the knowledge of all that is here. But the Bible also tells us we're not going to know God exhaustively. His ways are higher than our ways. If we could know God exhaustively, if everything in this book was in the essential category, all clear cut, he wouldn't be God. Because this is the perfect revelation of who he is. And if we as creatures who are finite, broken human beings could figure out the infinite creator God, he wouldn't be God. He's God because we can't figure it out. So when there's a book that's the perfect revelation of who he is, there's going to be some things in here we're not going to be able to figure out exhaustively. Now he gives us enough to know him and to fall in love with him and be saved and walk out his gospel purpose and reign with him forever. That's all really, really clear. But there's other parts of this that are not as clear as other parts. And in that, we have to wrestle. And that's what we're going to kind of do today. So how Jesus is going to come back gives, there's a variety of views about that. However, what's not up for grabs is he's coming back. In one of the essentials, and in our denomination, if you look at our statement of faith, those are our essentials. And in statement of faith number nine, it says this, that we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Jesus Christ. That's an essential. No question. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope motivates the believer those who have placed their faith in Christ, to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Be the reality that Jesus is coming back should motivate us to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. That's the essential. That's the essential. Now, how that's going to play out is where you have the finer points. The Bible can be trusted and all that's needed to save and grow, but there are these areas where they fall in that non-essential category and the finer points of this doctrine of eschatology, how Christ is going to return, are one of those. So let's dive into the schools of thought. And I want to say that in all of these schools we're going to dive into, 
every single one of them has problems with it. That's why they're non-essential. There's things about it that are really rock solid, but then all of a sudden there's a problem passage that throws it off. Someone will say, this is where I land. And another person will say, yeah, but what about this? So we have to land somewhere where we hold it loosely. So when we dive into that, these are those things. All of it stems from this thing called the millennial reign in Revelation chapter 20. If you have a Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look at this millennial reign. I covered this a couple weeks ago, but not in the detail. I'm going to do it here. Revelation chapter 20, I want to look at the first six verses. It says this. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, the one who is the devil and Satan. This angel bound Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image or had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This phrase, a thousand years, appears seven times in the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20 and nowhere else in the New Testament. But seven times here. And with this... People have taken this millennial, which means the reign of a thousand years that this is referring to, and with other passages have developed schools of thought around this. There's three main schools of thought that we're going to walk through. And please understand that many, 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 many trees have died, given their lives, so that theologians can write about these three main schools. There's finer points. I'm not going to get into the finer points. I'm going to keep it broad. But yes, there's a spectrum in each view and many different variations. So I'm going to kind of take the 30,000-foot flyover with these, all right? The first one I want to talk about is called amillennialism. Amillennialism. In amillennialism, amillennials believe that the 1,000-year reign of Christ that we see in Revelation 20 is symbolic. It doesn't mean Christ is going to come to earth and reign a thousand years. It's happening now. That Satan was bound so that the church of God can go forward in today's age, proclaim the gospel, see people come to faith, bound totally so there's no suffering, no, but withheld somewhat so there's not utter destruction so the church could continue. 
And at the end of that thousand-year reign, which is symbolic and figurative, not a literal thousand years, when that time has been completed, then Jesus Christ is going to return. At that point, Satan will be destroyed. There'll be a great throne of judgment. There'll be a resurrection of the believers, and God will set up a new heavens and new earth. All the things that are going to take place when Christ returns at the end time will happen in that moment. So it's happening now. It's taking place. It's called amillennialism because there's no future millennial. It's taking place now. The thousand years is a figure of speech. The proponents of this view love this because they say it's very clear. If you look at the passage and you just take Revelation and read it through, it just is the clearest way to see it. All these things that's going to happen when Christ returns all happen without interruption. You're going to see in the other views, those, other, those things get interrupted. And there's these blocks of time, and it doesn't seem like it fits logically together. Those opposed to this view say, yeah, but it seems like when we read in Scripture, there's things that look a little bit more like a millennial reign, not quite the new heaven and new earth, but a little bit more of Satan's less, Jesus more than what we're experiencing today. We, when we see in Scripture, we see some of those things. So you see there's a point-counterpoint to all these. There's a point-counterpoint to all these. And guess what? There has been for thousands of years. So if you land somewhere and think you figured it out, I'm very cautious of that. Because extremely smart, heart godly people have wrestled with these. And we get the advantage of looking at what they wrestled with. But there's a point counterpoint to all these. That's ah, millennialism. The next one is post-millennialism. In post-millennialism, the church is going on Jesus' mission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Now go make disciples of all nations. Jesus ascended, and now the church is walking out that command in the world, and because of that, more and more people are going to hear the gospel. More and more people are going to come to faith. The church is going to expand. The kingdom of God is going to grow. So what's going to happen is society is going to get better and better and better. We're going to see this glorious thing happen in society where sin and the corruption of sin is going to be less and less. The effects of sin are going to be less and less. And there's going to be this uh, major result in Christian significant influence in the world that's going to bring about this long time of godliness, peace, and righteousness on the earth. Yeah. Enough said. Now, you may be thinking, but you look at the earth, how could anyone believe that? That all of a sudden things are going to get better and better and better, and all of a sudden there's going to be this period of righteousness, and that's the thousand-year reign. Again, it's not literal, it's symbolic, but that season where everything is going well and there's godliness, peace, and righteousness on the earth, that is the millennial reign. After that, Jesus will return, Satan will be vanquished, there'll be great white throne of judgment, there'll be resurrection, new heavens and new earth. All the end time things will be happening after that period on earth where everything is going really, really well at peace and righteousness and happening. Some opponents say, look at our world. And that's true that many are leaving this position by the droves as the days go on. But a responsible post-millennialist will say, you can't look at the world. You have to look at what scripture says. 
But the truth is, this was really popular right after World War II. And it's been diminishing since. The proponents of this say, Jesus commissioned his church to go forward. Of course, there's going to be fruit of that. The word of God is not returned void. It's going to happen. There's going to be more and more godliness. When Jesus taught about the parables, they would say, it started really small and then gradually grew. Those opposed to this say, yes, Jesus had all authority on Christ, but it didn't mean it's going to bring out a kingdom now. He was talking about a kingdom later. And yes, Jesus talked about the parables starting small and growing, but to the extent of where that growth happens on earth can be debated. So that's the post-millennial view. The third one, which is probably the most popular in evangelicalism the last 50 years, is premillennialism. Premillennialism. So post-millennium, Jesus comes after the millennium. On millennium, it's taking place now. There's no future millennium. Premillennium, Jesus comes before the millennium. So Jesus returns. Satan is vanquished. And then there's a literal 1,000-year reign where Jesus is on earth, on a throne, reigning literally for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, then Satan is destroyed. There's a great throne judgment and new heaven and new earth began. That's premillennialism. Those who propose this say it fits well with Old Testament passages like Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, Psalm 72, and Zechariah 14. It's consistent with some other New Testament passages It fits that there's a time greater than what we're experiencing now, but maybe not quite like the new heaven and new earth. Those opposed say, but you're taking something that's only mentioned six times in the whole New Testament and making it literal versus when it's swimming in a whole book that's symbolic. How can Christ return and then have this 1,000-year reign where people on earth are still being born, So they have to come to a decision whether they're going to follow Christ or not, where sin and corruption still reign while Christ is on his throne on earth, where people can decide whether they're going to follow Christ or not while he's reigning on his throne. Like, how does that work? Where people during that thousand-year reign in premillennialism, some will have glorified bodies, no sin, no sickness, Some won't. How does that work? So there's a lot that's thrown into these views. Now, if it wasn't confusing enough, it gets better. Because under premillennialism, guess what? Three more types of views. And this all surrounds the whole idea of what many of you asked me about, the rapture and the tribulation, and how does that all fit in? In post-millennial and amillennialism, we don't buy the rapture. We just think Christ is coming. Where in premillennialism, there is a rapture with the tribulation. So this is pre-tribulation, premillennialism. All these next three are all under the umbrella of premillennialism, not post or ah. So in this one, all of a sudden Jesus comes like a thief in the night gathers the whole church and goes up to heaven. 
In that moment, seven years of tribulation starts. We get that from um, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, says it'll be a great tribulation. Daniel chapter 9 talks about how it'll be a seven-year length of that tribulation. So Jesus comes, gets the whole church, they go up with him, now we enter seven years of tribulation. At the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back. Satan is vanquished, then he's reigning on earth for a thousand years, and then those things happen. Satan's destroyed, final throne judgment, new heavens, new earth. In pre-tribulation, you see the rapture take place. Jesus raptures and gathers his church before it gets really, really bad on earth. If you notice, there wasn't much about the rapture in the book of Revelation. We didn't see it. Rapture really comes in from a key verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17, where it says, that, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17, it says, then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's the verse that most pre-trib and mid-trib, we're going to get into a second, people hang on when they talk about the rapture. That's the rapture verse. Proponents of this view would also say in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, when Jesus is giving a letter to the church, he says to one church, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Meaning I'll keep you from this tribulation. Other people say, if you look at the book of Revelation, after the letters of the seven churches, the church is nowhere to be found because they're raptured up. I strongly disagree. You see martyrdom, you see martyrs there, you see a church all through the book of Revelation. He comes like a thief in the night, those who believe this would say. We see that in the rapture. Those opposed to this view who bring up and say, wait a minute, say a couple things. One thing they say is, we don't see anywhere in Scripture where Jesus comes to earth again twice. He comes once. But in this, he raptures, and then he comes back after the tribulation. The people who believe in this say, well, the first one isn't a total coming back. If you read it, it says, we meet the Lord in the air. So he's not down all the way, he's just kind of in the air. And proponents say, yeah, but he's either back or he's not. If he's in the atmosphere, he's back. Point, counterpoint. Those opposed to this also say we shouldn't be so afraid of suffering. God allowed his son to suffer and says in scripture we will follow his footsteps, we'll have fellowship in his sufferings, and the church will endure some sort of suffering in the end times. There's another view, the mid-tribulation view, in premillennialism. So in this view, the tribulation starts. Rough times, first three and a half years, of suffering begin, but they're not near as intense of suffering as the last three, three uh, and a half years. Halfway through the tribulation, the rapture takes place. Jesus comes back, takes up his church, and then the real difficult intensity of suffering happens in the second half of the tribulation. Then Christ returns again at the end, the thousand-year reign, Satan destroy, great throne judgment, new heavens, new earth, all those things roll out. Scholars see this as the... Tribulation is 
put into two halves. Proponents say we get this from Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, and Revelation 12, 14, where we see this phrase that you may remember when we covered in Revelation chapter 12, a time, a times, and half time. We see that in those Daniel passages. We see that in Revelation. A time is a year. So you have a time, you have times, plural, and then you have a half time, 3.5. So they say it's signaling that the tribulation will be broken up in these three and a half year periods. Those opposed have the same opposition as they did in pre-trib. Jesus doesn't return twice. Nowhere in the New Testament does it clearly say that the church will be taken out of the tribulation, and those are the opposed to that view. The last view is post-tribulation. In this view, under premillennialism, there's seven years of suffering, and the church is there. Then Jesus returns, Satan is vanquished, there's a thousand-year reign, after the literal thousand years on the earth, then Satan is destroyed, great throne room judgment, new heavens, and new earth. The church will endure the seven years of suffering. After the tribulation, Christ will return. Proponents of this say this is what we see in Scripture. 1 Peter 2.21 said Christ suffered and we will follow in his footsteps. Many places in the New Testament we are told to prepare for a great suffering. Romans chapter 8 verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. Revelation 2.10 says a crown will be given to you who endure the suffering. Those who oppose us say there's only one view, that verse that talks about the rapture, and it's not entirely clear, and that's in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Those opposed to this follow the reasons being opposed to pre-trib and mid-trib. So you have three views of the millennial. Amillennialism, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism. Under pre-millennialism, you have three views about the tribulation. Pre, mid, and post. Why in the world all these views? Don't let this sway your absolute rock-solid trust in Scripture. In all things necessary to know God, to follow God, to be with God and reign with God forever and ever, you have everything you need right here spelled out super clear. In the places that are not as clear why did God not make it that clear? I don't know. But I think it's perhaps because he wants us to wrestle with his word. And he wants us to understand how big he is. He wants us to understand that he's bigger than our thoughts and we're not going to be able to figure him out. I think he also wants us to learn how to disagree well. How to formulate positions and have a spot where we can disagree well. I think he also wants us to stay humble towards one another and stay humble towards his word. When you distinguish the essentials from the faith to the non-essentials of the faith and you wrestle through that, it brings a spiritual maturity to the believer. So many of you asked, where do I land as your pastor in these views? I will open up my cards and say I land as an amillennialist. And I've taught you the book of Revelation through that lens, through this series. And I believe that because to me it's the only view that makes sense from the totality of Scripture. That most of Revelation is symbolic, so I don't think this 20-year reign is literal. 
And it's the view of Scripture that I believe the Lordship of Christ is glorified the most. I have a hard time with difficulty of Jesus reigning on earth and there being people deciding to follow him or not, whether sin and sickness is still reigning in some and not others. To me, it all makes sense in that view. He comes, the things that we see that are going to happen in the end times are rolled out immediately and it's clear cut. That's my belief. But because it's a non-essential, I hold it loosely. I hold it humbly. I could be wrong. And you have to say that when you're dealing with the non-essentials. Where I grab onto like a pit bull and I won't let go is Jesus is coming back. He is coming again and he will destroy all evil. He will destroy the devil. He will set up a new heaven, new earth, and we will reign forever and ever. The Bible is absolutely crystal clear on that. So what I want you to walk away from this series with is this. First of all, Jesus is king, no one else. If you don't walk away with that, this series has been a waste. Jesus is king, no one else. There's so many things in our world that are trying to jump on that king spot in our heart. They're trying to jump on that throne that rules us. There's so many things. And some of them are really, really good things. Things like families and jobs and hobbies and entertainment. They're things that we're given to enjoy, but when we make them God and make them king, we're in big trouble. Only Jesus can be king. And in this age... Now I'm going to wake a bunch of you up who are sleeping right now. In this age when we're talking about politics, when the election ads are flying and we're moving into an election, I want to say to you, church, be careful you don't make politics your God. Make sure you don't make the United States of America your heart kingdom because as a Christian, you belong to another heart kingdom. Now hear me, don't walk out of here and say, Pastor Dan said we're not supposed to engage in politics. I didn't say that. We are supposed to engage in politics, but you better not make it your God, and you better put it in the right spot. You need, we have an epidemic going on in Christianity in America where Christians are being discipled by their preferred news network instead of being discipled by this book and the Holy Spirit. Don't let it happen. Keep it in perspective. Because when people get discipled by their news network and not this book, what happens is their heart for Jesus and his kingdom go really, really small and their desire to pick a fight and be angry goes really, really big. And all of a sudden they come to me and they say, I become this person I don't want to become and I'm angry and I have all this because you've put your heart in the wrong kingdom. Be involved. You can take a stand but you don't have to sell your soul to it. Sell your soul to this. Be a kingdom person. Follow Jesus Christ. Put your heart on the fact that he's going to come again and set up the kingdom that's not going to ever fade forever and ever and ever. And that's the one that we are citizens of. We are aliens and strangers and occupy this land very temporarily. And in the time that we're occupying, we are to be ambassadors for Christ. And when you get caught up in the United States politic thing, what happens is you're no longer an ambassador for Christ because half the population writes you off because you're on one side and you lose all influence with them to bring about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so your ambassadorship is weakened. Don't let that happen. 
Ambassador for Christ first. Member of Christ's kingdom first. Number two, we need to replace an unhealthy fascination about the future with a rock-solid commitment to follow Jesus. We need to replace an unhealthy fascination about the future with a rock-solid commitment to follow Jesus. Let me pause something. I'm just following a prompting. If me talking about that thing I just did with the politics is making you really, really angry right now, two things. I love you. I'm for you. Take some time today and just think about what I'm saying. That's all I ask. You're okay. We're in a good place. But I just want you to think. As your pastor, I have to do that. All right? Number two, we need to replace an unhealthy fascination about the future with a solid commitment to follow Jesus. Revelation was not given to us to entertain or to set up a timeline of the end world. It was written to strengthen Christians to live in this world, to strengthen us to endure harsh treatment that will come to motivate us to endure through persecution and suffering and to give us a firm confidence that this world is not all there is, that something greater is coming. Number three, we need to live in this life with a view of eternity. We need to live this life with a view of eternity. Ecclesiastes says that God created us with an eternity thirst in our heart. There's an eternity in our heart. We long for things to be better. We long for things to be good. That's the eternity in our heart. And the vision, the place we set our hearts with that is when Jesus comes again and sets up the new kingdom that will last forever and ever. That's where our hearts should be set as believers and people. And that should motivate us to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission, teaching people about the gospel. And number four, we need to become gospel people. We need to preach it to ourselves. We need to know the gospel well, and we need to live it out. We need to know the gospel well enough that when those lies come into our head that says, I'm not enough and I'm nothing, that we say, no, God loved us and he sent his son, he died for you on the cross, and now you have a new identity in Christ. And when those lies come and say we must earn favor with God to do all these good things, we say, no, it's done already by the cross of Jesus Christ. He fully satisfied what God requires. And I live in that place. And now I point others to that only truth that gives salvation to all people. Reading the Bible and worshiping in church is supposed to make us homesick. Reading the Bible and worshiping in church is supposed to make us homesick. It's supposed to make us long for a kingdom where there's no sin, no sickness, no suffering, no injustice. When we come in here and gather and open this book and worship, we're supposed to have a homesickness cultivated in our heart, knowing that something greater is coming. The church through the ages called this the blessed hope. Where the blessed hope is we know that Jesus is going to return. All sin, suffering, sickness will be done. He will set up his kingdom. And what he rules and reigns will become fully, fully fulfilled. And we're going to see it and live in it and experience it. That's the blessed hope. And my fear is that some places in the church, especially in the United States, we've forgotten our blessed hope. 
because we've been inundated, uh, what am I trying to say? Inundated by the things of this world. And our hearts have become saturated by so many false gods that we look to for life. Don't lose your blessed hope. Don't lose the fact that your Savior's coming as King of kings, Lord of lords, will establish his kingdom, will vanquish Satan, will destroy evil, and will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. And it'll be the most glorious thing that we can't even imagine. Become a homesick Christian. May we at Crossview Church long after the book of Revelation series is over, never, ever, ever forget our blessed hope. Let's pray.